This message was recorded live at Elevate Church in Erie, Pennsylvania. As followers of Christ, we follow a God who was crucified, dead, buried, got up, walked out of the tomb, demonstrating that there's nothing that you and I can't walk out of. He doesn't love me based on my performance. God loves me based on my position. It matters so much that we imitate Christ and we live out those principles. There's nothing that you could do. There's, there's no great sin that you could have ever committed that would be a barrier between you and Jesus. To learn more about Elevate, how you can get connected, or how you can support the work that Elevate is doing in Erie, visit elevatechurch.com. We know each other. Hey, everybody. How you doing, Elevate Church? I'm so, so excited to be here. I love coming here. I love the, ele- uh, the Elevate energy that just comes forward from you guys. It's so awesome. Uh, you're doing great things in the city, doing great things to help people. I want to talk to you a little bit in this Holy Spirit uh, series that you're in, I want to talk to you about the Spirit empowering us to serve, to be His witnesses, and what it's calling us to do. And, and sometimes it's calling us to step outside of what we're comfortable with doing. So a few months ago when I was here, we actually did uh, talk about taking risks. But I want to talk about that specifically in terms of what that means or what the Bible is calling us to do about the issues of poverty that we see in our world. And I don't know about you, but maybe you come here uh, today, you find yourselves often in autopilot mode. Anybody ever been in autopilot mode? You're just kind of going about your business. Yeah, okay, we got some hands. Some people are really struggling with it, apparently. I mean, just kidding. So they were like, autopilot. They don't even know how they got here this morning. Yeah, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, though, right? You're driving. uh, you're, You're in your head. Um, you're going down 99, headed south, and you got to make a left onto Hershey because you got to go to Target, and you've just got stuff going on, and then all of a sudden, you're, you're in Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah. like, how did this happen? I don't know. And then you spend a lot of money on gadgets, or maybe that's too far. <laughs> maybe you're just like, you realize it really quickly, you turn around. I end up in Edinburgh. Maybe you get up in the morning, you're, you're thinking about your day, you've got some phone calls to make, you, you've got a lot on your mind, you get your coffee, you need to heat it up again, uh, and, and so you put it in the microwave, you just start dialing somebody's phone number. Oh, no, that doesn't resonate with you? Okay. That was overshare. Okay, I, I have some problems. But we find ourselves just going about our business, talking about the same people, meeting with the same people, sitting at the same cubicle or place at work or going to the same place. And and you see these people and you see those people and you do these things and you watch this television show and you get in the cycle and then you go to bed, you get up, you do it again and again. When I was uh, first married, Jen and I uh, worked, I worked uh, at a church. She was working at a Christian school. And we didn't see anybody or talk to anybody that wasn't a Christian. And, and you, you start feeling weird like something's messed up. Everybody agrees with me. 
Nobody has different political leanings. We're talking about the same stuff. Everybody uses the same language, and then you go someplace else, and they look at you like you're crazy. You know, that we, we realized we got in this Christian bubble, and we had to start doing something different to talk to people who weren't Christians, because sometimes Christians are annoying, you know? And we, when you're around them, we get, well, praise the Lord, how are you today? <laughs> God just blessed me with this coffee, and it's Christian coffee. Christian caffeine, wake up my soul, you know, whatever it is. It's not on my notes. <laughs> I didn't plan to say that. Yeah, we get, we get stuck. And what do you have to do? If God is calling us to change the world, I mean, you know, this Christian bubble, if you're going to small group and always that, you're not talking to people, like that, a church like that becomes ingrown. Right? And, and what happens to things that are ingrown? <laughs> yeah, they get gross and pussy. <laughs> you got to go to the doctor and get it fixed. Because there's something wrong with that. That's not how we're supposed to live. That we are here, God has blessed us. We, we go to church to go do something for his kingdom, to reach out, to serve. That we're here, we're called to do the great commandment, to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to go and make disciples the great commission. That is our calling. Jesus has called us to do that. What does that look like in terms of serving those in our community that are poor? What does it look like, and what does the Bible have to say about what we should do about those that are struggling in our society, those that are not having everything that they need to survive? You know, I didn't know what poverty was like growing up. I grew up as a white kid in, in, in a middle-class family, uh, in a great family out in the country. And when I mean country, I mean the country, like not in Edinburgh. Go to Edinburgh, take a right, and drive into the woods. That's where I grew up, outside of Edinburgh, somewhere between Edinburgh and Albion out there. And what we did for fun is make forts out of sticks. It was the woods. I didn't know what it was like. I didn't know what poverty was. And my mom, actually, she, an inspiration to me. She's here today. Hi, Mom. <laughs> she doesn't want any attention, but it, there she is back there in the back. Uh, <laughs> she... She told me that when she was a kid, I, I work at the city mission, her aunt was taking her to the city mission when she was five years old to listen to the, the music, and, and she said she got saved at like every altar call that they had. Uh, so she's really a Christian. <laughs> but I remember when I was a kid, she, she would go and serve uh, and go to the city mission. And so when I told her, that when I was taking this job at the city mission, uh, I think she was pretty proud of me. But growing up, I didn't understand poverty. I didn't, I didn't get it. I mean, I didn't know who was rich and who was poor. I thought my friend Terry was rich because they got a computer. And in the 80s, that's a big deal. They, fit, they, they now fit on a desk. And you could bring them into your home. And you got a Texas instrument, 16K of computing power. 
Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what 16K means, but <laughs> it wasn't very much. You know, now your smartphone has more computing power than all of NASA when they put two people on the moon in 1969. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? So yeah, if you want to go to the moon, you can do that with your phone. But I didn't understand. I thought he was rich and we didn't have his money. I mean, my parents made us think that we didn't have any money. But, sorry, sorry mom. So, <laughs> but, you know, when it turns out my dad worked for Lord Corporation and it turns out they pay him pretty well down there. But I didn't understand. I didn't know what poverty was. And then we, you know, he got a Texas instrument, but then we got a Commodore 64. <laughs> so, ow, take that, Terry. You know, so... My dad must have got a raise. But I didn't understand, you know, and, and I got a car when I was 16. And I didn't know that people didn't get cars to drive. Now, you know, I, I had to work. I'd put gas in it, those kind of things. But it was a Volkswagen Rabbit diesel. 1981. You know, when the family was embarrassed to drive it anymore, they gave it to me. <laughs> 50 miles of the gallon in the 80s. How many people's cars get 50 miles a gallon? All the Prius people are like, yep. <laughs> and that car was amazing. I mean, it went from zero to 60. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> and not only did it get you A to B pretty reliably, but it, it gave you a massage along the way. It was, like, <laughs> it was amazing. It was a great car. The diesel, so you had to plug it in when it got cold. It's embarrassing. But I didn't know people didn't have, you know, some of my professor friends, their kids, their parents, they had nice guys. I didn't, like, I didn't know. I didn't know that people went without. I didn't know how that worked. You know, you see the commercials on television and people in other countries, but I didn't know. I didn't have a concept, you know. And so I, when I went to college and then graduated with my phys ed degree, you know, and, and decided I didn't want to do that at all. Uh, and I went into ministry. And I, a friend invited me to go on this trip to New York City. And we went to this uh, place where we went out in the streets and we took youth group and we went out in the streets of New York City in the middle of the night with teenagers, which, you know, why not? And we took blankets and food to homeless individuals on the streets. And I came in contact with people. And all of my preconceived notions about somebody in poverty were shattered. I mean, these people who, who were brilliant, who had degrees, they were living on the street. You know, at any one time in New York City, there's as many as 100,000 people that are homeless. That's the, that's the same as the entire population of Erie, Pennsylvania. And I met this one guy who had a full-time job. And they would pick him up on the corner, and he worked for waste management. And he would do 40 hours a week, and they dropped him off. He was homeless. People living in boxes at the base of multi-million dollar buildings. And I was like, man, this isn't right. And some of those multi-million dollar buildings that we were helping people were churches with their doors locked. And something shifted in me. Something broke. And I think that's where God began to really make it real for me. That there wasn't anything different between me and the people that were out there. That our struggles were different and we all had our own messes to deal with. 
And I wasn't any different. And poverty became a real thing. And as I went to McLean Church and and we decided to start this church, uh, this country boy from out in the woods decided to do a church in the city. And and we did it at the cell block. We asked the people from the cell block, and some of you know my story. And and we started this church that met in this bar. And it was downtown. You may have heard of the bar, the cell block. You might have saw it on the news, people getting shot, something like that. That was church. (laughs) The kids still drive by, Mom, church. No, no. (laughs) And when we were there, you know, we started, and I had this idea. God, I think God let me have this vision of all the cool people that partied there on Friday and Saturday night would come to our church on Sunday. (laughs) And I think he just let me go there because had I known what I was getting myself into, I don't know that I would have continued with it. But how how many of us know that God's plans for us are way better than our own? And then we step into them and we trust God. And and yeah, a couple of the college students and young adults came to our service. But God brought everybody that lived downtown. And we grew that church from 30 to 12. (laughs) And then to 250. Packed in the bar. My very first sermon at that bar was from that stage. And, and we, we came in and we didn't realize that the cell block was going to decorate for Halloween. And I don't know if you've ever seen a nightclub decorate for Halloween, but it does not look like your neighborhood. There were severed heads. I think they were fake. Hanging from the ceiling and severed limbs. And there was like, you know, the, the, the fake cobwebs. And, and there was this demon in a cage holding a cross. I don't even know what that means. I was, I was like, I don't get that. I don't, that's so weird. It was creepy. And I was like, Lord, should I continue to do service? And that day, my very first sermon from that stage Near Halloween, I preached at a skeleton hanging from the ceiling as though it were flying at me, giving me two middle fingers. <laughs> How appropriate. The, the devil did not want us to do church there. But you can... Fly me the bird all you want, Satan. I am just going to do what we're going to do. <laughs> and, and All right. All right. I'll take that. <laughs> and it was, ma- it was amazing. And I thought, man, we're going we're gonna to fix the city. It, it, and what happened was that God invited everybody in. And there were white and black and Hispanic and Asian. There were old and young. There were single moms and there were people that were struggling with addiction and prostitutes and, and, and just came together, all of us. And crazy stuff happened. I mean, we'd be worshiping, you know, and the cops would come in and drag somebody out. And we'd, like, <laughs> happened more than once. They employed, the cell block actually employed their bouncers to be at our church because our people were stealing their alcohol. <laughs> <It's> like, 
<laughs> Communion was awesome. It was just, <laughs> I'm sorry. I got to stop. So, just joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. We only did that once. So, you know, when, when we were there, I came face to face with those that lived in poverty and, and even further, my prejudices and, and preconceived notions were shattered and, and I wasn't fixing the city, the city was fixing me. And in those moments and in the, with those individuals struggling in their areas and struggling in poverty, God was showing me that there's nothing different about us. We grew up in different contexts, and I, I realized had I grown up in their situation, I would, may not even still be alive. I would not be as far down the road as they were even. And it began to, God began to break my prejudice and my judging and, and began to teach me. And poverty was no longer an issue to solve, but it was, it was Bob and it was Martha I mean, Martha was awesome. She'd been jumped around all the different homes growing up in, in, in foster care, and she had one kid of her own. That kid is now this big. But Martha became the evangelist of Church in a Bar, and she took all of our Church in a Bar cards and passed them out everywhere on the bus. I, I met this lady. She gave me this card. We decided to come. I was like, oh, you met Martha? He was like, yeah. Martha put them in people's mailboxes. <laughs> Post office called me because my name, my number is on the thing. <laughs> you can't do that. Yeah, I know. I'll talk to her. <laughs> but it was no longer an issue to solve. It was real people with real stories of survival. Awesome people. And it's when we realize that we're all kind of broken. It's, it's the poverty, if we step out and step into somebody else's things, the poverty around us oftentimes starts to press on the issues of poverty in us. That poverty is just a missing necessary ingredient, and all of us have a missing necessary ingredient. We're all here today because one of those main missing necessary ingredients is our connection with the God that created us. And so we just began to share there and invite people into our story, and they invited us into their lives. And God trained me and taught me. And that verse that Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who realize they're broken and hurting. One of my favorite verses that Jesus says to all the religious people, all the pastors of the day, you know, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Because they got it. They understood they were broken. They needed God. It was the religious people that didn't get it, that were the furthest away. And when I went to the mission and I left the McLean, I went to the mission, Pastor Rick Crocker uh, that was the executive director before uh, Steve, uh, invited me to my first gospel rescue mission conference. And I was so excited. And he said, why don't you come into the executive director meeting? I was like, oh, man, I am going to learn something. I mean, Pastor Rick? I mean, some of you know Pastor Rick. Oh. <laughs> Great, man. I'm there. I'm going to learn something, all this wisdom around the room. And they start talking about how there are some government agencies trying to, you know, eliminate the issue of poverty as though that were a bad thing. And I was confused. And then one gentleman spoke up. He just an old guy who was probably like 108 something. And he said, but we know something they don't know. And I thought, this is it. This is what I came for. I got my pen out. I'm ready. And he says, the poor will, we know that the poor will always be with us. So it's like job security for us. 
And there was some awkward laughter. And then I just felt like I wanted to throw up in my mouth. I was like, what? Really? That's what Jesus meant? All your years in gospel rescue mission and that's what you came up with, old person? That's it? That's all the wisdom that you've brought together today? You know, they say with age comes wisdom, right? Yeah, sometimes age comes all by itself. And, and I left that. I mean, what did Jesus, and it bothered me. It stuck in my head. And I, and I was like, is that what Jesus, what did Jesus mean by that? The poor will always be with you. So let's take a look. Matthew 26, starting in verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, which she poured over his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Uh, I like to say they were incensed. <laughs> no? no so. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been uh, sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And we know that when we study the scriptures that Jesus was a rabbi and he had disciples. And, and a, a rabbi oftentimes in their teaching would quote something from the Old Testament expecting his disciples to know the context. And I thought, well, where is he quoting from? I found it. It is Deuteronomy 15. So let's read Deuteronomy 15. Starting in verse 4, it says, However, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess for your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised and you will lend to many nations, but you will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend to them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. Remember this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year of canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will towards your needy among you, among your fellow Israelites, and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow, Israelite who, fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in the land. So let's work backwards, shall we? The first thing is that there will be poor people in the land. So be open-handed. See, the, the problem still exists today, right? 
Our world is full of people that are struggling, that don't have what they need to get by and to survive. I mean, when we look around the world, we see that there are some huge injustices all over. 75 million people in the world are, are actually in slavery around the world. 75 million in slavery. When we look at the, 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 the contrast between the rich and the poor, the three richest people in the world, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and that other guy, <laughs> they own more wealth than the poorest 48 countries combined. Let's think about that. Those three guys own more wealth than millions and millions of people in the poorest 48 countries combined. There's something wrong with that system. That is a world that is broken, that is not working as God intended it in the beginning. When we decided to do it our own way and took over control, God wanted us to run it, but he wanted us to run it his way and not our way. When we run it our way, that's what it looks like. I mean, how about close to home? What does it look like close to home? In our own city, in the last 10 years, the poverty rate fluctuates between 25 and 30%. That is between one in four and one in three people in Erie, Pennsylvania, of the 100,000 people that live at or below the poverty line, the federal guidelines. That's huge. And even in my own context, anecdotally, that, that we came across people, you know, I'd pick this guy up all the time and take him back to a certain spot. He said, oh, just drop me off here. And I, one time I said, where do you live, man? He said, well, I live in a tent by the tracks. Me and my daughter. And it, it was November, and we just had 20 inches of snow. And he tells me that he and his daughter had rescued three kittens. So they had three kittens, him and his daughter, in a tent and 20 inches of snow in Erie, Pennsylvania. And we see that people live on fixed incomes, and, and their rent is $500 a month, and they, and they make $720. They make $660. And that gets eaten up really quick. And this guy, I asked him, I was like, how, well, how come you don't have an apartment? Do you have any income? He said, well, I have some income. He said, but I can't get to a place where I have a security deposit. And I was like, if somebody helped you get a security deposit, could you get an apartment and sustain it? He said, yes. And so our church put together the money for a security deposit. And the guy moved into an apartment with his daughter and the three kittens and uh, lived there for 10 years. And, and it was just one leg up. His daughter recently has gone into uh, the military, um, and uh, she's currently finishing up boot camp. Uh, he was a veteran, so the veterans helped him get into a nicer apartment, and he is doing great. We don't realize just what people are going through. And it's right here. The problem still exists. So what do we do about it? What does the Bible call us to do about it? So if we keep moving up through the passage backwards, we get to this wicked thought that I told you to remember. And what was the wicked thought? The year of what? Seventh year. Year of canceling debts. Why is that a wicked thought? Why is that? I mean... When I'm in the car, I think I have way more wicked thoughts all the time than that. 
How many people here are just a different person when you step into the vehicle? Right? Just a constant righteous anger comes over you. You're driving behind somebody, they're going super slow, you're riding their tail, you're like, oh my gosh, I've got places, that, you know, we went, we've got to change the world here, and you're keeping me from doing it. <laughs> they finally turn, and then somebody's riding your tail, and you look in the rear view mirror, and they're on you, you're like, man, nobody has any patience anymore. <laughs> Is that any of you? Were you following me here today? Where was I? <laughs> the wicked thought. Why is that a wicked thought? Because it's an excuse of why we shouldn't be open-handed. It's an excuse not to help. The year of canceling debts is near. If I help this guy, I'm not going to get my money back. Or, the year of canceling debts is near, he'll be fine. And we go about our business. It's an excuse, and all this is addressing is that we all have them. We all have excuses. We all make excuses. I don't know what yours are. I know what mine are. I know what I've heard people say. I know that I don't, I don't have time. I, I don't see people, I, I don't come across people that are struggling. I know that to be true, actually, because there was a guy that was homeless, and he would sit on a bench every day on, on Peninsula in 12th, and the business didn't want him out there anymore, so they took his bench. This guy's a smart guy, just walked down 12th Street until he found another bench. But this time, the bench was squarely in Mill Creek, and people in Mill Creek haven't seen a homeless person. And so we start, we were flooded with phone calls at the city mission. There's somebody in a homeless in Mill Creek. <laughs> what do we do? Can you come get them? One person said, as though at the mission, we go and round people up. That's right. <laughs> Just so you know, that's not what your $5 is going to for the car. <laughs> One lady said, called, said, can, can you come get this guy? I'm here with him right now. Do you want to go to the mission? She says, he was like, yeah, he wants to come to the mission. I'm like, well, I can, I can come talk to him, yeah. She said, if, if, you don't get, if you don't get him, I'm going to have to start taking a different way to work. But it's not because she didn't care, because that woman every day was coming and feeding him and giving him lunch. And she couldn't bear to see him in this state. She didn't know what to do or how to fix it. And a lot of us are in that place. And so oftentimes, instead of trying to figure it out, and it's heartbreaking, it's heart-wrenching, and we don't know what to do, we, we try to make excuses of why we, don't, we shouldn't do something. And we can't fix all the problems. And, and not everybody's problem is my responsibility, but what is our call as the church? And I don't say this you know, to, to put guilt on you. We don't serve out of guilt. We serve out of love because we have been served by Christ and we know what unconditional love is and we want to extend that unconditional love. But how do we do that? What does that look like? And what are we being called to? And it's not going to be the same for each one of us. But, but maybe our excuses are, are just 
You don't know how. Or they got themselves into this problem. They should get themselves out. How many people here got to where you are in life um, all by yourself? All right. I asked a bunch of college students that one time uh, in a nearby university. And three of them had raised their hand. And I said, that is amazing. That is amazing. You guys fed yourself as infants. <laughs> that is unbelievable. And then you taught yourself how to read. <laughs> they were like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I mean, you know, like, a lot of us have put a lot of effort to get to where we are, you know, and it, it doesn't happen without a lot of effort, right? But all of us, as John Maxwell would say, all of us are like turtles on a fence post. Like, if you see a turtle on a fence post, you know what you can assume. He had some help. We don't, we don't get there all by ourselves. And so when we think about the situation, sometimes we, we, I mean, we're just good at judging because it's hard to figure out how to do it. I mean, and Christians especially are great at it. I mean, we make, we make a, you know, we become very proficient at judging. It's just something that we have worked on for a really long time. But how do you step out and begin to understand somebody else's story? If you, if you don't have time, there was actually a study done by Yale of, 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 of graduate students in seminary that they told them that they had to go preach on the Good Samaritan passage of, you know, the guy that helped. And, and, they, and on their way there, they put somebody that pretended to be homeless. And, and 90% of the seminary graduates going to speak about the Good Samaritan stepped over the homeless person to go give the sermon <laughs> about being a good Samaritan. <laughs> and they told him, like, you got to get there. You, you don't have much time. Go. And they, you know, so they had to rush, you know. So when they said, oh, you got plenty of time, you should start, then it, then it was only 60% stepped over. The person. Sometimes we just don't have time. We packed ourselves with our lives with so many good things that the good, though, can be the enemy of the best things. So, so what are you living for? What are you doing? What is God calling you to do? How do we step out of autopilot into places where we begin to impact the world? Because in those circumstances, God will use those to change us as well. There's some really specific work that God wants to do on you, and he's going to do it in and through you and on you while you do it. So the third thing is, what is the vision? So we go all the way back up to the top of the passage, and how does it start? There should be no poor people in the land. That's the vision. That's what God wants. That's how he created the world to be before we decided that we were going to try to do it our way and busted it. That's the vision. Now, on this side of heaven before Christ comes, are we going to eliminate poverty across the world? Probably not. But is that what we're shooting for? Yes, because that's the kingdom of God. That's how it should be. When Jesus says the kingdom has come upon you, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that, that we are here to take God's kingdom and to spread his kingdom of how it should be, that the world can see how it should be. That's the vision. That's what we have been called to. 
And so whatever area we've been called in, we're bringing the kingdom with us as we go. So what was Jesus' point in Matthew 26? The poor will always be with you. Um, I, I would venture to say, as one speaker said, if they're not with you, they should be with you. You should be among them. <laughs> but I, th- I think his main point is that it starts with him. The issue of poverty that we're here to do something about is secondary to first knowing Christ. So that when we enter, we're doing the thing that he wants us to do, not the thing that we want to do. That we're doing it through him and in the love of Christ and in the power of the Spirit, not in our own strength. That through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we find life and hope for our lives. And that we take that hope with us as we go and take the kingdom to those who still need to hear it. So tonight I want to extend an offer. Maybe you're here and you've never started that relationship with Christ. You, you just, you've, you've been coming, you, you feel the spirit like pulling at you each week and you just never have made the decision to follow Christ and, and to surrender your will to his. And maybe tonight is the first time for you. And maybe you've been following Christ but you find yourself on autopilot. And you need to step out of that. And you need to step into some risk-taking things and, and let the Holy Spirit lead you to places where you wouldn't normally go to talk to people that look different than you and have different experience so that God can train you and change you and that you can bring hope to those that need hope. So let's pray. If you're here tonight and your head's bow and your eyes closed and that's you you want to surrender your life to Christ for the first time and you only need to do this once but if that's you tonight would you put your hand up just real quick praise the Lord that's awesome your journey with him starts today that the Holy Spirit comes in and and, and, and there's a party, there's a regeneration in your heart, a new heart, forgiveness for your sins because of his death and his resurrection. You have new life in him. And there's a party in heaven for you. The angels are rejoicing. It's awesome. T- make sure you tell somebody about it. If you are a believer on autopilot and you just want to break those chains of autopilot and you want to step out and and you're ready to do that. And maybe that starts with the tangible things today of a bag or a box and just doing something very real. Or maybe as another organization or, or you're going to make a conscious decision to, to take a next step. If that's you, would you put your hand up? Awesome. Praise the Lord. God, we thank you for those that are starting their journey with you and those that are breaking the chains of, uh, of a life in autopilot. God, we ask you to use us, fill us with your spirit, to serve, to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that you would get the glory, that people would see Jesus through us. And this church, God, we're so grateful for this church, for Elevate Church and all the work they're doing around the city and in Mill Creek and in Erie and in the surrounding area. God, may you continue to bless them in all that they do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
are always encouraged to know that God is using Elevate to bless people's lives. If you have a story about how God is working in your life, share your story online at elevatechurch.com.